Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Johnny. One of the uh, one of the realities of being a Christian. It's one of the the stark realities is that opposition isn't just highly likely, it's guaranteed. The Bible and the the history and story of the Christian church makes it pretty clear that those who belong to God and those who, who follow Jesus, you're going to encounter resistance and hassle in some shape or form. And the reason is simply because of your faith and your commitment to the way. Jesus explicitly made the point that because he was persecuted, his followers are going to experience it as well. And the apostle Paul, writing to Timothy, kind of backed up what Jesus said whenever he wrote that everyone who wants to live a godly life, you're you're gonna be persecuted. You're gonna face opposition. Opposition comes with the territory. But one of the facts we've got to recognize is is that behind all opposition to godliness, all opposition to the work of God, not only in our world, but also in our lives, behind that is an enemy, is an adversary who is hell-bent on opposing and devouring. The Bible identifies this enemy in lots of different ways. Satan the devil, father of lies, angel of light, a prowling lion. And he is obsessed, and he always has been obsessed with destroying the worship and the work of the one true living God. That obsession led to his initial downfall, but ever since, He has attempted to do everything within his power to rob God of the worship and the glory that only God deserves. And any Christian and any church that is dedicated to worshiping and honoring and glorifying God is going to be opposed by this enemy. That opposition is going to come at lots of different levels. It's going to present itself to us in, in lots of different ways. But as the Apostle Paul graphically reminds us, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, which is often how the opposition comes at us. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil. Opposition is part and parcel of authentic Christian faith and practice. And as we return this morning to the book and the story of Nehemiah, and we're we're picking it up in chapter four, we encounter significant and severe opposition and hostility towards the work of God and towards the people of God. It's not the first time we've encountered it in this book. It's not going to be the last time we encounter it in this book. Now, I realize that that nowhere in this chapter or the next or the next is Satan or is the devil specifically mentioned or identified. But as one commentator points out, if you look closely enough, you will see the shadow of his scales. 
You see, whenever there is opposition to God in any shape or form, you can be pretty sure that there's much more going on that is obvious than is obvious to the naked eye. But I also realize that whenever I start talking like this, there's a danger. Because whenever you mention stuff like this, people do one of two things. Either some people go off on one and get obsessed and preoccupied and blame the devil for everything. Whereas there's other people who just simply dismiss him. Totally ignore his presence and his activity. C.S. Lewis wrote, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. I don't want us to fall into either error. But as we read Nehemiah 4 and we begin to witness this intense opposition to the work of God and to the people of God, I want us to be clear. I want us to have this kind of bigger picture in mind. Never should we underestimate the deeper realities of living and worshiping in a world that is more than just purely physical, material, and tangible. We live in a spiritual world. We're engaged in a spiritual battle. There is an enemy who is prowling around, seeking to devour us, doing all he can to oppose the work of God, the worship of God in this place and in our lives. Last week, as Sarah says, we read how the work of reconstruction of these walls and these burnt gates got underway. And we read how many, many different people stood side by side and served together in restoring not just physical structures, but also in restoring God's honor and God's name and God's fame. But in Nehemiah 4, opposition raises its ugly head yet again. And as another writer puts it, now that the work of God is prospering and the people are working together in unity, we're going to find yet again that any time heaven advances, hell opposes. So there's opposition. A few weeks ago, I started with the question, how do you handle opposition? In your life, how do you handle it? Well, this morning we're back there. And we're going to look at how Nehemiah reacts to it and copes with it and deals with it. So, please, as we often do, let's stand for the public reading of God's revealing word. Nehemiah 4, we're just going to read the first six verses. If you have a copy of God's word, brilliant. If you don't, it's, it's on the screen. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. And in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? 
Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. So the people worked with all their heart. Grab a seat. Ridicule. Ridicule and sarcasm are two of the deadliest verbal weapons. Both of them are hard to take. And we tend to see and hear a lot of ridicule and sarcasm around us all the time. I was uh, lying awake in the early hours of Tuesday morning, and so I watched the second live presidential debate, although I'm not sure debate is what actually took place. But ridicule certainly did. In fact, it seems that this entire campaign in America is increasingly riddled with ridicule. Sarcasm. To ridicule someone's to mock them. It's to pour contempt on them. It's to jeer at them. It's to laugh at them. It's to poke fun at someone using dismissive language. And here in Nehemiah, the opposition that he faces takes on this deeply unattractive form. The perpetrator, the mouthpiece, is Sanballat. This is the third time we have come across him. And every time we come across him, he's having a go. One-off opposition is difficult to stomach. Persistent antagonism's a nightmare. Back in chapter 2, we read that whenever Sanballat heard of Nehemiah's arrival in Jerusalem and he heard about his plans, it says in the text that Sanballat was disturbed at Nehemiah's arrival. When work starts, Sanballat, along with a couple of others, Tobiah and Geshem, up the ante, turn up the volume. And to quote verse 19 of chapter 2, it says that the three of them mock and ridicule the builders. Now that work has not only started, but has actually progressed, the toys are well and truly out of the pram. It says that Sanballat is incensed now. He is so angry. And then we read in verse 1, he ridiculed the Jews. And make no mistake, this is extreme ridicule. This is fierce opposition. It's full on. And the question is, how's Nehemiah going to cope with this? How do we cope with opposition? Well, before we go there, let's look at the enemy-specific opposition, because using ridicule in the form of five questions, interesting, the power of questions, but using ridicule in the form of five 
questions, Nehemiah or Sanballat lays into Nehemiah and the constructionists. And his first question is this, there in verse 2. In fact, all of the questions are there in verse 2, but here's the first one. What are these feeble Jews doing? It's derogatory. Right off bat, he's, he's calling into question their strength and their ability. It's a bit like saying, who do they think they are? Who do they think they are? Sam Ballot makes fun of their ambition. He belittles them. He says, you're weak, you're nobodies, you're punching way above your weight, you're feeble. And whenever those kind of voices speak into our lives, and they will speak into our lives, people will come along and voices will be heard that say, do you know something? You're weak. You're pathetic. Such a spiritual crutch. That's, that's all you've got. It can be very hard to take when voices like that speak into our lives. And it can make you wonder, am I up for this? Can I do this? Can I live this life? Can we see this project through? See, if an enemy can crush your spirit, if he can intimidate you and make you feel small, then you might just back down. You might just pack it in. You might just take the foot off the pedal. And and let's be honest. You know, there are times whenever we look around us at the scale of the challenge we face. And you look around us at the strength of the world, seeming strength that it has, and you know something, you just feel, I don't know about you, but I just feel weak. And that type of opposing voice will speak into our lives time and time again. The question is, how do you respond to it? How do you respond to it? Sanballat's second question. Will they restore it for themselves? In other words, do you really understand what you're attempting to do here? It's a question that that throws doubt on their intelligence. You see, as Sambalit looks on and he sees perfume makers and goldsmiths and politicians and ordinary men and women trying to construct walls and mix mortar, he queries their wisdom. These people are never, he says, going to complete this project for themselves. Will they restore it for themselves? trying to get into their heads. He's trying to make them think, you're mad. You're crazy. You're foolish. Trying to dampen their enthusiasm. And again, it's a constant tactic of the enemy. Have you lost your senses? You ever heard that voice? Or what about the other one that says, have you checked your brains at the door? Do you honestly believe all this? Foolish. know how stupid this is? How stupid you're going to look? Trying to restore this for themselves. How do you respond when people question your intelligence for being a Christian? Lots of people do, don't they? Sanballat's third question seems to ridicule their faith. Will they offer sacrifices? It is hard to know exactly what Sanballat was getting at here, 
but it could be a swipe at the kind of prospect of offering sacrifices of thanksgiving and dedication whenever the wall is complete. So Sam Pilate, you see, probably didn't believe they would ever get there. And so he just says, like, will you ever offer those sacrifices of thanksgiving and dedication? No, you won't. He's scoffing at their optimism. And again, it's, it's an effective opposing voice because it wants to make you think, do you know something? You're all just being far too idealistic. You need, you need to get real. As individuals and as a church, you need to stop living in dreamland. How do you respond? How do you respond? Sandballot's fourth question veers towards sarcasm. Will they finish in a day? No, of course they won't. It's more of a challenge, but about their willingness to stick at it. You see, it's all good and well you've got started but it's finishing it, and finishing it quickly. I mean, are you going to be able to hang in there? Are you going to be able to see it through? Are you going to be able to complete the job? You see, some people start things and maybe even start well as these people have, but are they prepared for the long haul? Have they really thought this through? You see, opposition will often try to derail us. It will try to create tension and frustration about the time it's taken to get there individually and as a church. Will they finish in a day? No, they won't. Are you going to stick in for the long haul? Next final question. Can they bring the stones back to life from the heaps of rubble, burned as they are? You see, you can't resurrect dead things. Hmm. What once was is now a pile of rubble. So do you know what? Give up. Pack up. Just admit defeat. You actually can't do this. It's impossible. And it's another popular approach of the enemy. How do we respond? So Sanballat has finished his attack for now. He's channeled his anger in the ridicule, in an endeavor to wreck this project and to sum up his verbal opposition, and it's all in the space of one verse. Here's what he says. You're weak, you're foolish, you're idealistic, you're naive, you're deluded. And I want to suggest it's highly likely, in fact, I want to suggest it's guaranteed that each of us will come across opposition like that in our individual lives and in our church lives. You're weak, you're mad, far too idealistic, you're just naive, you're deluded. Plus, I don't think it's pushing it too far to suggest that as a church with an ambitious building project on their way, the enemy may attempt to ridicule our efforts along similar lines. How are we going to respond? Well, if you go back to the story, the verbal onslaught isn't over because Tobiah, Sanballat's partner in crime, the other half of this negative duo, he pipes in with overt circum... Sorry, I was going to say circumcision? <laughs> Cynicism. <laughs> Edit that out of the tape. Um, he pipes in with overt sarcasm and cynicism. Verse 3, he says this, 
What are they building? Even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stone. I think it was Oscar Wilde who said, sarcasm is the lowest form of wit, but it's what? Highest form of intelligence. Is it? You see, Tobiah decides to jump on the bandwagon. He's listened to San Balat's ridicule and he decides, I'm going I'm to pitch in here. I'm going to disparage these people. I'm going to laugh at their work. I'm going to undermine their confidence. And you see, sarcastic comments when they come our way can be embarrassing. And they can be distressing and they can be damaging. So again, the question is, how is Nehemiah going to respond to all this? This opposition. Well, what we discover, and these are powerful lessons, is that Nehemiah does three things. Or rather, he, he doesn't do one thing, and then he does do two things. And the thing that Nehemiah doesn't do is he doesn't retaliate. He doesn't talk back. He doesn't argue back. He doesn't return ridicule for ridicule. I mean, it must have been so tempting to come back at Tobias' last comment and say, hey, come you and try push the wall down. You think a fox could jump on it and push it? Come you and try push it down. But no, he doesn't go there. You see, retaliation never builds walls, but it does build resentment. And the apostle Peter's words about Jesus are worth remembering that when they hurled insults at him, and when they opposed him, and when they abused him, he did not retaliate. And when Jesus suffered, says Peter, he did, or he made no threats. Nehemiah doesn't retaliate. Don't go there. But he does do two things. He prays. Hear us, O God. For we are despised. Verse 4, Nehemiah turns to, he talks to God. That's where he goes. That's how he responds. And that's got to be how we respond every single time. And there's an honesty in his praying. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me is not true. Because this is hard to take. These words are causing Nehemiah pain. God, we're despised here. Hated. Now what Nehemiah then goes on to pray is tricky. Tricky to process what he prays. Problematic for many people. Here's what he prays. God, turn their insults back in their own heads. Give them over to the plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt. Do not blot out their sins from your sight. Doesn't sound particularly loving or forgiving. Doesn't sound very Jesus-like whenever Jesus taught us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. This sounds like more like one of those cursed prayers that we come across in the Psalms, like Psalm 35 or Psalm 58 or Psalm 59. I don't have time to, thankfully, address this in any detail, but let me say two things. One, 
if we're struggling with someone, if someone has given us a hard time, if someone is ridiculing us, if someone is doing our heads in, if you need to vent your anger, if you need to vent your frustration, do it in prayer. Take it to God and offload there. Be honest before God. Nehemiah says nothing to his mockers, but rather says everything to his master. And that is brilliant advice. But secondly, what I want to say is that this isn't a prayer for personal vengeance. This is a prayer where Nehemiah is taking those who are hindering God's work and opposing God's kingdom and God's glory, and he's effectively handing them over to God to deal with accordingly. Because you see, surely the judge of all the earth will do right. Vengeance is his, not ours. And I know there is more I could say on this, but the key thing I want us to get is that you see when we face opposition, don't retaliate. Pray. Pray. And the final thing Nehemiah did, verse 6, he just kept working. See what it says? So we, we built the wall until all of it reached half its height for the people worked with all their heart. You see, Nehemiah wasn't going to allow this opposition, this verbal attack to derail his work for God. And so he persevered despite the resistance. And so let me go back as I finish to where I started. You see, as Christians and as a church, we are going to be opposed. We're going to face opposition. We're in a spiritual battle. And there is an enemy who is going to do all he can to distract us, to discourage us, to defeat us. And often the opposition that's going to come our way is going to come in the form of verbal attack. And so we're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be ridiculed as an individual Christian. We're going to be ridiculed as a church. People are going to say all those things that we've looked at this morning to us. How are we going to respond? May we embrace Nehemiah's example. Not to retaliate. Get before God in open and honest prayer. And let's persevere. Let's continue to stand side by side and do this. Let's pray. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for what we can learn. Thank you for the likes of Nehemiah for his example, for his resilience, for his determination in the face of opposition. And God, we recognize that so often we feel weak. We feel foolish. We're concerned that we are too idealistic. Maybe we are naive. Maybe we are deluded. And God, those voices keep speaking to us at all kinds of levels. And I pray Lord, I pray the truth of your word would break through. I pray you teach us not to talk back, but to bring it all to you, commit it all to you, give it all to you. And God, may you help us to keep going. We don't want to just start well. We want to finish well. For your honor, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.